Good morning. Pull out your Bible open to Ephesians 1. That's where we're at. Am I on, Jeff? All right. I'm on. Am I up? You can hear me? Middle school is going with the tall guy with no hair. Follow him out the door. All right. Love you. Get out of here. All right. Ephesians 1 is where we're at. Glad you made it back if you traveled somewhere. Um, I will make no TSA jokes whatsoever this morning, and that will be the last reference to it. Alive and well in Christ is what we're talking about. Uh, You know, Christians are, um, really, Christians ought to be about the most thankful people in the whole world. Amen to that? Having our eyes open to every spiritual blessing that God's blessed us with. That was chapter 1 of Ephesians. Um, man, I, I wrote a few emails this week, and I ended it this way. I said, good luck trying to count all your blessings on Thanksgiving. I mean, if we just started Thanksgiving uh, morning, right? No football, no turkey, no mashed potatoes, nothing. We just started writing all the way through till now. We'd still be writing. I mean, really, if we stopped and just thought about it. And like Rob said, traveling to Mexico, all of a sudden you, you see tangible things like clean clothes and shoes that don't have holes in them. And you're like, man, I rarely thank God for those. You start to visit someone who's got no pinky, and you realize pinkies are pretty important, and you're pretty thankful for yours. You're not thankful for your eyes until you get something in your eye. And you're like, man, I'd be so thankful if this thing just weren't in my eye. You know what I mean? And, and as we start to just chew on it, if we really just chewed on it for four days straight, man, we'd have quite a list, wouldn't we? This morning we're in Ephesians chapter 2, and um, you know, one of my favorite places on earth, you guys hear me talk about Yosemite a lot. I have a lot of favorite places on earth, but Yosemite's got to be one of them. How many of you have seen the Yosemite Valley before in person? Okay, Now you can see pictures, but until you see it in person, there's just really nothing like it. Um, I loved taking different kinds of students, seniors on a senior trip who had never been there and hiked it and explored it, international students who had never seen it but heard about its fame and its beauty. And I loved coming around this one bend and just being able to show them this, this snapshot of Yosemite Valley. And, um, you know, in the words of that great theologian, Kung Fu Panda, uh, he, might say it, he might say it this way, that there's like concentrated awesomeness right there in that valley that's nowhere else. Now, mind you, as you're driving up, there's tons of beauty. I mean, there's just this incredible forest. There's some incredible rock features going on. And, and sometimes we miss that part of it. But you could be just taken by that. And then you come around and you're like, ah, it gets even better. And you get to see Yosemite Valley. Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 are, it's kind of like the Bible. The Bible is just an, an amazing collection of books. It's really 66 books, as most of you know. But it's this cohesive whole talking about Christ that we were just singing about. But you get to Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, it's a little bit like Yosemite Valley to me. Romans 8 might be like that. Romans 12. There's other passages you love and you go, man, there's just concentrated awesomeness in these two chapters. And you're going to get sick of me saying it once again, but you're in for a treat this morning. You're not in for a treat because of the speaker. Uh, You're in for a treat because who's being spoken about. And that's what Ephesians 1 and 2 is all about. I hope you see that. I hope that it comes out in the text this morning. Let me pray and then we'll dive right into it. Father, we thank you for the blessings, God. We thank you that there's a a day that we're supposed to stop and say thank you. But Lord, we really pray every time with thanksgiving. And God, we have so much to be grateful for. And we thank you that this morning when we woke up, your mercies were new today. Father, we we praise you and thank you for this, um, this gathering of your people, of family, Lord. We don't have a table or a turkey, but we're your family gathered right now around the Thanksgiving weekend. What a great way to kind of cap it off before we get into our weeks. Father, right now, we just expect you to meet us here, to show up. Lord, we, we long to see and hear with spiritual eyes, spiritual ears, what you have for us in the text today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, quick recap. Dr. Paul is writing here, and he's not a doctor that minces words. Sits you down, says, I've got some bad news, and I've got some good news. Remember that? Two weeks ago. He just said, look, here's the bad news. Look at this list of words. Rebel, dead in our trespasses, son of disobedience, separated from Christ, following the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air, no hope, alienated, children of wrath, strangers without God. Paul says, you see why I wanted to sit you down for that? That's kind of heavy to take that on. And then he says, but God. And that's where we really left off two weeks ago. Um... He really says this, he he says it in pretty sweeping terms, that all of humanity are helpless and hopeless. 
They're a part of this fallen mankind separate from and in rebellion to God. That's our state that we're born into. We didn't choose it. We didn't ask it to be that way, but that's where we find ourselves uh, in the story. Now, if you aren't aware or convinced of this predicament you're in, then what I'm about to share with you this week, where this text goes, becomes just news. And probably old news because you live in America. It's called the gospel, which means good news. And it really is good news. But if you didn't get that doctor looking at you in the eye and you thought he was an authority and knew the body well, and he told you, you're really, really, really sick, you're going to die. A hundred percent, you are going to die. Unless... And then he starts to lay out the remedy, the cure for it. If you think the guy's a quack and doesn't know what he's talking about and you're not convinced you're sick, do you see how the cure, you're like, yeah, it just becomes like noise to you. It's white noise. You don't really care about the news. It's old news. It's just news. It's not, you don't even care about it. But if you're convinced of your predicament, if you know that's the state that you're in, then you're like a thirsty person just going, give me. I want the answer. I want the, the, the good news here. I'm convinced that's where I am. And that's where but God shows up and gives hope to rebels. We talked about the fact that we're really dead but alive. We're, we're spiritual zombies, so to speak. And this week we're talking about being alive and well in Christ. Let's read it. Uh, I'm going to read from chapter 2. And we're going to read 4 to 6 and then I'm going to cut down to verse 10. You'll see it in a second. We looked two weeks ago at all the kind of the the negative brushstroke of all these things that we were. Now we're looking at the positive brushstroke of all the things that we now are if we find ourselves in Christ. Verse 4. But God. Two of the most hopeful words. As I meditated on it this week, in the English language it's two words. But God. I mean two of the most hopeful words in all of Scripture. I'll tell you what, I, I was thankful for but God this week. I've never focused on just that, but I really am. Boy, if the story ends there, we're in a world of hurt, aren't we? Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The song we just sang, I think, was the text that Third Day thought about when they were writing that song. I mean, I just, I heard that song a few weeks ago at a concert before it was even released, and I'm like, (laughs) Ephesians 2. It's right there. That's the great love that's made us children of God. Skip down to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now Paul takes a couple of verses. Remember at one time where you were. That was two weeks ago. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I'm going to give you just a couple of notes this morning. The first thing is this, that God's rich mercy makes us new. God's rich mercy makes us new. In fact, really, that's the point. There's the whole sermon. If you don't do another fill-in, that's okay. The next two are just supporting that one point. God's rich mercy makes us new. Now, this passage unpacks a little bit of what that means, but that's it. The Bible confirms what most of us suspected all along, that we don't need like a little tune-up, we don't need a prop-up, we don't need a little makeover. We need to be made new. The things that we've been trying our whole life until we meet Christ, until we submit, until we're flooded with His light, are just prop-ups, aren't they? I mean, we're cruising along, we're like, I got this, I can handle this. It's not that bad. And at some point in your darkest night, you realize it is that bad. And I'm lying to myself, and no one else knows it. I think I'm putting on a pretty good show. And you start to become convinced what the Bible comes along and absolutely confirms. This problem runs deeper than you can possibly imagine. I want you to envision yourself tomorrow morning. You get up and you're getting ready for your Monday morning school, work, uh, caring for the household, whatever it might be. Uh, Here are some things that you might think are important. Getting dressed, please. That's a a positive thing. Getting fed. Most important meal of the day is breakfast, someone told me once. You brush teeth. You brush hair. You prep yourself. You grab your keys, your phone, your wallet, briefcase, whatever. Now, distract me here for a second. That's for Monday. You're getting ready, right? Right? 
You've had a long weekend. You're getting ready for your day. The most important thing, though, of everything I just said was the very first thing, that you wake up, right? If you never wake up, does it matter that you don't have your keys? No. What about your bad breath? Irrelevant. Your hair's a mess. You're not dressed. Who cares? You're asleep in your bed. So waking up is far and away the most important thing, or else none of that rest of that list makes sense. And I know some of you sit in here on church, because I used to do it too, but now I'm talking so I can't do it, but you're already thinking about Monday, some of you. You're like, gosh, we need milk. You know what? I need to swing by and do this. Well, here's part of your sermon notes. While you're doing that, at the top of it, write, WAKE UP, in all caps, okay? Now you've kind of got the message. So you can go back to your little list. I'm watching you, though. It's a small place. But that's the point. You've got to wake up first, right? The alarm doesn't go off and you're sleeping. None of that really matters. Your appointments don't matter. How you live the rest of your life does not matter. Here's why I bring that up. Greatest need of a dead person? What is it? It's life, right? Now, I'm safe. I'm, I'm, I'm safe on biblical grounds to use asleep and awake in the same terms as dead and alive because the Bible does that. Jesus says that we're dead in our sins until we're made alive in Christ. It also says, wake up, you sleeper. You're asleep. We used to have a college group, and we just called it awake. Because how countercultural is that to college students? Waking up, right? I mean, sleep is like what college students naturally do in the flesh. But to wake up, and that's what we're talking about. Greatest need of a dead person is life. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Don't minimize it. Don't minimize it as just an area you're kind of working on. If you're not found in Christ, you're dead in your sin. Along with all of mankind, you're in good or bad company, depending on how you look at it. But everyone, it affects everyone. That's what the Bible says. But God, even when we were dead, made us alive. Life is the offer, and I don't ever want us to forget that. Look at these verses, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John ten ten. the thief comes only to steal, kill, destroy. I came, Jesus talking, that they may have life and may have it abundantly. And this is eternal life, that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Can you imagine Jesus coming to that scene and he says, Lazarus! Come forth. Your mummy clothes are slipping a little bit. Your breath is kind of bad. You stink a little bit. Let me put some perfume on you. He didn't need any of that stuff. He needed the Savior of the world to breathe life into him and raise him from the dead. Otherwise, that's just a lousy, creepy story. So it is with us. We're Lazarus in that story. And the Savior comes, and the most predominant thing he gives us is life. Now, there's so many other blessings. We started the morning with this, right? So many other blessings. But what happens is people get to that part of it first without ever really accepting the life and understanding the offer, and here's what they think. And sometimes Christians perpetuate this myth. Hey, come to Jesus, and you'll have a good life. Your marriage is on the rocks. You need Jesus. Those statements both may be true, but that starts to imply that come to Jesus for a good marriage. You know what you end up doing? You end up feeling ripped off. Because you're asleep, but you've got your phone in your pocket. You're not prepped for life. You're not really alive. You just have some add-on benefits that come from being alive. So life is the offer. Always. As you're sharing with people, as you're looking and saying, God, I want to be ready at all times to give an account, to be a light to this world you've put me in, offer life. Come to Jesus so that you may have life. That's what we keep coming back to. People will pressure you on all, but what about this? How about that? Some of that you just say, I don't know about that. All I know is this. I was a dead person walking. I was a spiritual zombie, and he's breathed life into me, and only God is the source of that kind of life. That's all I can tell you. Keep coming back to life. Two weeks ago, we talked about this reality, that we are rebels, therefore we rebel. Put in more churchy terms, we are born sinners, therefore we sin. It's a product of the, of the, the, the core uh, of the, of the tree, the trunk of the tree, the roots of the tree. 
You don't go to the symptoms and try to trim off a few branches, hoping things will get better. We are rebels, therefore we rebel. When we rebel, we're alienated, we're far off, we're dead in our sin. When you violate God's law, you die. That happened in the Garden of Eden, it's still happening today. You watch it on the bad news. Bad news is on every single night of the week, and now on many cable channels 24-7. Watch the bad news, and you'll just see, this world's in need of the gospel. This world's in need of good news. We see where sin is leading. It's leading to alienation, to being far off, to being cut off, to being dead in our sin. That's what happens. That's the law of the harvest. You plant this kind of seed to the flesh, you're going to reap death every time. Some of you are nodding this morning because of your own life and going, and I have tasted of that. That is ugly. Some of you have loved ones right now that you have a knot in your stomach because you hurt for them because they're just marching straight down death's path. And you see it. Sin leads to death. Look for it. The great news, even while we were dead in our sin, that's when we were made alive. Another passage says, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That is going to become massively important to next week because of this simple fact. You know what all false gospels do? They take the word grace, which is undeserved favor of God just because he chose to, and add something to it. Every time. It can look really religious. It can look super irreligious. But every time, a false gospel, a false hope, will always take grace and add something else to it. The Bible says quite clearly, while you were dead, what good is Lazarus to his raising of himself? Nothing. Done. To illustrate this, if you have a teen, go in tomorrow morning at 4.30 and just stare at that teen sawing logs. He's in a coma right now. Okay? You're just looking at him going, man. What good is this guy to wake himself up? Nothing. I mean, he's just done. That's your state. That's a great illustration. Now, now, how good are you at saving yourself when you're in that state? You're not. You're not fit for anything. We're going to see it next week. So no one can boast. Our passage this week just says, by grace you have been saved. So we'll leave it at that. But bottom line, it's God's work from start to finish. Now, this, this mercy of God is overabundant. It's immeasurable. You couldn't possibly contain it. Just to try and count the resulting blessings from this immeasurable mercy would have taken you four days, right? And you'd still be going. Not only does he breathe life into the dead, but he goes on. Last week we had a whole Sunday called Hope for Orphans. And we just talked about some different things. And, uh, and it would be illustrated this way. It's one thing to take an orphan and say, I want to save your life. You were going to die in an institution in a faraway land. We're going to save your life by providing you the very basics, basic clothing, basic food. But here you go. We'll drop you off in America. This is the land of abundance. You'll at least be alive. Now, mind you, in some countries, that's a pretty good gig. If 50% of your fellow orphans are dying in the orphanage, no one's getting uptight about it. You've, you've improved your status, right? But that's not what God does. He doesn't just give us life. He welcomes us in, and as we just sang, he calls us daughter. He calls us son. He gives us a new name. And more than just providing for the basics of our life and giving us life, he welcomes us in to really give us life, love, and care, and discipline, and protection, and a lifetime of support. That's our God. As a new creation by God's redemptive love, we are welcomed close. That is great news. We're welcomed close. We were separated from sin. We were alienated. We were far off. And God welcomes us close. Verse 4, because of His great love with which He loved us. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've talked about this a bunch in this room. But that's why we sing about the blood of Christ so much. Last week as we're celebrating the broken body and the given blood of Christ, that's why. That's our access. It's the sacrificial sacrifice of Jesus Christ giving His blood. 
The Bible says elsewhere that we're, we're enemies of God. It said in our, week, our passage two weeks ago here in Ephesians 2 that we're following the prince of this air, of this world. And as, and as such, we're enemies of God. Now, enemies, what do enemies do? Enemies draw lines, don't they? Enemies draw lines and they, they keep each other at, at, at distance. Now, this can happen with nations, North and South Korea, right now. They're, they're, they're drawing lines. They've had problems getting along, and they're back at it. But this also happens around the dinner table at Thanksgiving. Right? I mean, you can have two brothers who are totally estranged. They come together because it's Thanksgiving. So for the sake of mom and dad, I guess we'll kind of put up with it. But there's tension. There's clenched teeth. There's battle lines that have been drawn. Not be physically close like North and South Korea, but they're not close. No one's welcoming each other in. So lest we just think this is out there, that out there is the same symptom that goes on around our dinner table sometimes. Enemies of God, keeping each other separate. Um, but God. Let me back up here for a moment in, in, verse, uh, in chapter 1, verse 4. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, according to the riches of his grace. What's this great purpose we're talking about? The whole series title is called One, because he's making things that were divided, separated, and alienated by the fall, and he's bringing them together after the counsel of his will, according to his purposes, according to his rescue plan. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. Some of you would attest to this because of the month you've had. Some of you would say that maybe due to the last week you feel this way. Some of you might say, man, due to my life I feel this way. But the fall is absolutely devastating. The fall that you read about in the first three chapters of Genesis is, is devastating. It leaves us undone and slain. It leaves us in a ditch, beaten, broken down, alone, shamed, absolutely hopeless. It takes on different forms. You can have a lot of money and be in that ditch. You can look like things are pretty good. You can be raised in the church, so to speak, and be in that ditch, beat down. Undone by the fall. Sunday night last week, we um, a handful of us went up to San Francisco, and we were cruising around the streets. Probably about nine o'clock at night, and uh, we kind of break off into different groups. We do this every year with First Baptist Santa Clara, our buddies over there, and um, and I got to meet this guy Charlie. We sat down with Charlie, and um, and we're parked right right there on the cement, chatting with him. Probably talked for twenty minutes, and look into Charlie's face. Charlie's probably mid fifties. Looks like he's a lot older than that. Looks like he's had um, just a lot of life punch him in the face. And uh, as I'm talking to Charlie, I started to re- learn some things about him. Charlie's a pretty shy person. He was born in Kentucky. He said, I'm a country boy. like the fresh air. also learned that Charlie went to Bible college. I learned that Charlie is an estranged son, an absent father, and a distant grandfather to two kids who live in West Virginia right now. Charlie's also a heroin addict. And because I know all that, I know that Charlie's also a pretty truthful guy. <laughs> looked him in the eyes and just told me all this. When I looked at Charlie and I said, Charlie, of all these things going on, I mean, you're in the streets of San Francisco, you're a half a block from where about a million people were cheering the Giants' victory a couple weeks ago, sleeping in an alleyway. Rain's coming in about an hour. It's cold. What can I pray for you about, Charlie? You know what Charlie asked for prayer about? Marco was there with me. He said, said, yeah, you, you can pray that I'd get to see my mom before she passes. I said, Charlie, where's your mom live? She lives in Kentucky. When I first talked to Charlie, I said, I like to ask this question. I said, Charlie, where are you from? I'm from Kentucky. So I always ask this. I said, are you running, you running from or were you running to when you came out here to San Francisco? And he goes, huh. He goes, I was running from. He's been away from home for a really long time. I just filled in the pieces and started to pray for Charlie and asked for reconciliation. I said, God, here's an estranged son. And Charlie just started to weep. He just started to cry. I mean, of all the things he wanted to ask for, you know what he wanted? He wanted his mom back. 
He just wanted to see his mom before she passed. I think he wanted to be told, it's okay, I forgive you, I love you. You're my son. I think he had a lot of things he probably wanted to say to mom as well. Didn't ask to get off heroin. Didn't ask for a better blanket. Didn't ask for warm food or all those kind of things. He wanted to see his mom. And implicit in that was all kinds of things. The reconciliation that Jesus offers to mankind is a picture of that right there. We're Charlie. We're beat up. We're addicted to things we can't help ourselves with. And you know what we want most? We want to be back with our parents. That's it. That's it. And in an honest moment, last Sunday night in San Francisco, I kind of got to see that. So pray for Charlie. Would you just pray for Charlie today as you guys are thinking about it? Man, I look at that person. By the way, side note. Let me tell you what Charlie did for us as we're sitting there talking. As we're talking, he's, uh, he's fiddling with some paper. I could kind of tell he was doing something. He begins to tell us this little story. I've heard it before, but he talks about two brothers. One was good, one was bad. And in the course of this tale, he's tearing up paper, folding it, doing different things. And then he talks about tickets to heaven. And he says one guy got his tickets to heaven. And, um, and, he, and he starts to take the paper and spells out. He spells out hell. And then he had Ethan. He goes, here, would you hold this other piece of paper? And Ethan goes, sure. And he's holding it. So he's telling this whole story. And he goes, you know what? What hell is, Hell's for religious people who are, who are trying to earn their way to, he- to, to heaven. And then he goes, would you give me that paper? He takes the paper out. And he's fumbling around. He's kind of like, I'm not doing it with much enthusiasm today. And he's kind of, you know, mumbling this and that. You know what he unfolds? A cross. He said, heaven's for those um, spiritual people who've been in hell and turn to, to Jesus. He didn't quite fill that part in, but, but, but that's what he was pointing out, the, the cross. You know, I, I said, Charlie, what was the last thing Jesus said to his disciples? Wasn't it to be witnesses to all the earth? I said, here we came to pray for you. Here we came to minister to you. And what you're doing, you're being a witness I said, this is the same message I heard in church this morning. Religion leads to hell. Only the cross, only through Jesus do you get into heaven. I said, you keep doing it, man. I asked him, how many times you do this? Ah, I do it around. I'm like, you keep doing that. You're a witness for Jesus Christ right here in San Francisco. Pretty cool side note. Uh, But God, listen to how the message renders this passage. Now because of Christ dying that death, Shedding that blood, you who were once out of it all together are in on everything. Don't you love that? Out of it all together, now you're in on everything. That's the picture that we have because of God. Those who are out of it are in. The point is this. You may fail, but you're not a failure in Christ. You may stray, but you're always a son. You will doubt, but you will forever be a daughter. Chosen, secure, seated at the table with the Father. Here's perhaps the best part of this passage. Why would God do that? What's the motive of that? You ought to ask that. Here's the motive. Love. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. You ever do something irrational for love? I know you have. I mean, it was just, it made no sense whatsoever. You know who identifies with that? God does. I mean, it really is kind of scandalous what he does in the name of love for straying sinners. Jesus illustrates that time and again with different kinds of stories. The prodigal son is a scandalous story. But that's Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit working in tandem to save wayward children. Sometimes our heads and our hearts don't, don't really synchronize to the same watch on things. Don't you, don't you see this sometimes? You, you kind of get ahead of yourself with your heart, and then your head kind of catches up. Sometimes you're leading with your head, and you're like, my heart just doesn't catch it. Sometimes those are on different planets within the same person, and that's just fun to watch, unless it's you. Then it's miserable. Uh, but but it's, it's, it's true as, as I try to get my head around this, and as I try to think through these things, learning about God's motivation actually really mystifies me. As I stop and I really look at why God does this, it's mystifying. John MacArthur said this, Salvation for God's glory is by the motivation and power of God's great love. God is intrinsically kind, merciful, and loving. And in his love, he reaches out to vile, sinful, rebellious, depraved, destitute, and condemned human beings and offers them salvation and all the eternal blessings it brings. 
Man's rebellion is therefore not only against God's lordship and law, catch this, but also against his love. A rebellion isn't just a violation of the law, although it is that. It's a violation of God's extended love to us. Some of you are parents in this room, and you felt what God feels in that. Because you might be praying, longing for a prodigal right now, looking down the road, wondering if they'll be returning today. It's a rebellion against God's love. Now, you and I can know this is true in our head, but still not really feel it, still not allow our hearts to say, how could this really be? That's a part of what communion formally says to us. Stop and think about the sacrifice. If you have a hardened heart this morning, would you just go read the suffering Savior on the cross? I know it's about to be Christmas time, but go read the Easter story. Read it again and read it again. If you're really longing, if you're really seeking, I believe God will chip away at your hardened heart. And as you see a suffering Christ on the cross, your heart will be softened to the truth and to the the love that he displayed to us. As me-centered rebels, you and I get confused as to why we're in, as to why God would do these things to us. Sometimes people from a different era have a a way of writing um, that kind of grabs our ear. This is Charles Spurgeon in a great little book called All of Grace. says this, Jesus did not die for our righteousness, but he died for our sins. He did not come to save us because we were worth saving, but because we were utterly worthless, ruined, and undone. I'm not making this up. Not only is this biblical, it's been around a long time. He came not to earth out of any reason that was in us, but solely and only out of reasons which he fetched from the depths of his own divine love. In due time, he died for those he describes not as godly, but as ungodly. If you have but little mind, yet fasten it to this truth, which is fitted to the smallest capacity and is able to cheer the heaviest heart, let this text lie under your tongue like a sweet morsel till it dissolves into your heart and flavors all your thoughts. And then in a little matter, though those thoughts should be as scattered as autumn leaves. Charles Spurgeon. God's creative work also enables beauty. It says that he, ra- we're not going to touch on this, but he raises us up and he seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. Go back and listen a few weeks back about what it means of where Christ is right now. Where is Jesus today? He's on a throne. He's ruling from a throne. That's where he is. I don't even have time to expound on the fact that now we're seated with Christ. You're, in essence, ruling with Christ right now. You're submitted to his leadership, but he's raised you up. And that's how we get to function in this world. But we are going to spend time in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Here's a picture from a few years back. Kids in our middle school group just preparing a simple meal at a shelter. Simple. And yet beautiful. Now the Bible has much to say about good works uh, that, that we're to be engaged in. The entire demanding series was talking about things that God demands of us. And this lifestyle that we're saved into. We're not just saved from sin and made alive. But we're now to walk in the newness of life. But here's the, here's the rub and here's where we get it confused sometimes. Before we can do any good work for the Lord, He has to do a good work in us. The demanding series, I must have said it every single week. The first demand, you must be born again. Wake up. Don't worry about the keys. Don't worry about getting your job right. Don't worry about the briefcase. Wake up. The Lord does a good work in you. Now you're able to able and equipped and sustained to do all kinds of good works. But He's prepared for you. John 15, 8 says this, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus told us we're to bear fruit and that will be the living proof. But here's the rub. Good works have no part in gaining salvation, but a great part in living out our salvation. Let me say that again. Good works, no part in gaining our salvation. You cannot wake up yourself. You're dead. Once you're awakened, 
they have a great deal of what it means to live out that salvation. Get the picture? That's the gospel. That's all it is. Uh, Last Sunday, if you were not here with us, it will not come through on the podcast. I promise you that. But maybe go listen, and Chi has done a marvelous work, I think, of of editing together and splicing it. Um, But I just, I, I reveled in the signs and wonders that God performed in this room a week ago. And the stories have just continued to flood in from you who were in this room and the things God was doing. We had prepped for months in advance to just have a a hope for orphans, saying God's plan for orphans is the local church. There's no other plan. And not every Christian should do everything, but every Christian should do something. That was the big idea. Now, all kinds of other things went on, but let me just give you a little report, since many of you have been engaged in different kinds of good works that the Lord has laid out for you to walk in, and you're walking in them. Now, these are tangible numbers, and so we can kind of get a little grip on it and say, what is God doing? Sometimes people go, how's your church, Dave? Actually, people always ask that. How's NBC going? I I rarely know how to start with that. I go, go, well, I I can tell you about a hundred different things, uh, but let me just give you a story, or let me just tell you this. And sometimes numbers begin to paint the story. But don't get too impressed by the numbers, because there's so much more that went on last week than just these numbers. But I shared with the room in here, I was undone to tears as I'm singing a song. And I just saw 40 cards that represented 40 real children in a real village in Ethiopia get sponsored by the people in this room. Our World Vision rep said, your church will do roughly 10 if they're average. I said, we're not average. We'll do 25. And God said, ye of little faith. He took my little mustard seed faith, allowed a group of people to, to kind of focus the attention last Sunday. And not only do we have 40 cards, by the way, if you've taken them and given them in already, great. If you have them still, I need them by December 25th. That's Christmas. It's another day as well. Uh, remember it. Um, but we also are getting more cards. I called our rep and said, we've got people asking actually for more cards. So we have more cards available. Come and talk to me. Uh, it's also all on our website now. You can go, if Ethiopia, for whatever reason, didn't strike your fancy, you can go to our website now under share, how we share, and there's a whole thing linked to, to World Vision to kind of participate that way. But the number 40 is just representative of a generous people that God's raised up in this building. You know what you are when you're generous, church? You're mimicking your father. We have a generous God. And so you're like, I, one person said this, Dave, I was in the back praying, and I knew we couldn't leave a single child hanging. I knew God wouldn't do that to me. I knew he wouldn't let that happen. And I said, man, I'm glad you were in the back praying. Because God moved in this room. Not only that, but I got word back from the Smiths who've been running the Operation Christmas Child uh, initiative. And we've had 72, um, I think 72 was the last I got like a week ago, boxes that were delivered for Operation Christmas Child. Generosity pouring out of this church. Praise God for that. You know what that is? It's just evidence of fruit. It's, it's proving your you're his disciples. Now, I know no one in this room last week was saying, I better grab a child. I want to be in tight with God. You don't gain your, your salvation by giving a dollar a day to someone in Africa. It's not how it works. You couldn't begin to purchase your salvation. Praise God for that. And then to top it off with, with last Sunday night, one more story about last Sunday night. We're out wandering around the streets of San Francisco. You know what happens every single time I ever go do that? Something phenomenal that I've been noticing the last few years. I have never once had someone look at me and say, you guys are Buddhists, huh? Are you guys Mormons? You guys are Scientologists, huh? You must be that atheist group that meets in the coffee shop. I've never, ever had that, but without fail, for about seven years running. I haven't had people ask, are you Christians? I've had them say this, you guys are Christians, right? I mean, do you catch that? That is massive. I haven't said a word yet. I don't have my pastor shirt on. I'm not wearing a cloth. I'm not saying bless you and walking up with pixie dust. I'm just walking up. I'm just some dude. I say, hey, brother, you need something? No, I'm good. We got knit hats. I'll take a hat. What flavor you want? And Ethan pulls out the hats and we start looking. You know what I got on Sunday night? You guys are Christians, right? I, I, I mean, I heard it verbatim so I, could, so I could report it back to you. 
Not even asking. Not wondering. You know what that is? That's Jesus' name being known amongst the disgusting underbelly in San Francisco of where sin leads to. By the way, people with young children, you want to steer your kids away from drugs, alcohol, and a life of rebellion? I'm telling you this straight up. Get them involved in ministry. That means you need to be involved in ministry. You go start spending time with an alcoholic. You just share some mashed potatoes at KFC with a guy who's about to die from 30 years of abusing his body with pot and alcohol. That's it. You go just sit on the ground with someone who smells. The stench of sin is right there. You just wander around that and you say, Son, daughter, that's what God saved us out out of. It's a physical picture of where we're all at spiritually when we're born. By the way, that's where alcohol can lead. That's where abusing your body can lead. That's where a gateway drug can lead to heroin. Don't go there. Got it, Dad. I got it. Love that Jesus' name is known in the streets of San Francisco. That means that it's not us. It's the church of Jesus Christ that's been out there weeks in advance, going along time and again, and it's Christians. I love that. That's, uh, that's a certain kind of service. I want to draw attention for a moment to just the everyday kind of service. Everyday kind of service is this. It's not going out to the, the homeless people. That's kind of external and measurable, and you do that once a year at Christmas or something. I'm talking about everyday Service. That means that when you take an interest in someone, you take an interest in someone other than yourself. When you pray for someone, you pray for someone outside of yourself. When you give, you give not to yourself, but to others. When you share, you don't make sure you get your cut, you share the abundance and give it away. That can apply to a thousand ways in your coming week. So you apply it and let the Holy Spirit tell you where that needs to happen. Your prayer, your stuff, your time, your effort, let it be others-focused. Those are the good works God has prepped for you. Now let me just give you a quick picture, and then I'm going to have a buddy of mine come and share a few words. But you could look at this and say, well, won't that digress into pride? Won't it digress into pride? Dave, were you just bragging about the church by giving numbers and giving reports? Let me just give you a little story. Let's go back to Yosemite for a moment, okay? In Yosemite, people have explored Yosemite. They've created trails. They've blasted granite out so that you can have a little trail path. They've put up guardrails. Some of you have climbed the mist trail before. There's a rock wall at the end that has guardrails so you don't fall to your death. There's signs posted everywhere saying, caution, don't go here, go there. There's a bathroom on the way to the mist trail. There's drinking fountains. And not only that, it's regularly being patrolled by medical and safety personnel. Okay? Just setting that up. That's there. That's already happening. Now, imagine suburban weekend cowboy guy drives up in his trusty minivan. He goes and he parks in the parking lot. His tires get dirty for the first time since owning the van. He bumps on a few potholes. He's like, I'm four-wheeling. I'm out in the wilderness. Parks his minivan in a parking lot that was leveled and prepped and is maintained by the park service, mind you. There are fences up to describe where to even park. Now, he whips out his map, and he's looking at it, and he kind of leads his family to the trailhead, all right? Now he's on the trail. He's walking the trail, and he's going along. He realizes he shouldn't go off here because it's dangerous because he can read, and he saw a sign. He's got to use the restroom. He uses the restroom. His brand-new canteen from REI is needs filling up, so he fills it up at the water that's provided for him on the trail. He does a little six-mile loop. And then you're back at the Awani Hotel, and he's sitting there having a cold one, and he's explaining how he conquered the mountain. (laughs) And you're just like, what? Dude, you didn't conquer anything. You're a suburban yahoo. Get out of here. Like, you know what? I mean, if you're a ranger in that situation, and you're listening to that, you're just like, dude, you are just out to lunch. You know what? That's a Christian bragging about the good things that they're doing. That's it. We didn't conquer anything. You know what we're doing? We're out on a hike. God says go left, not right. We follow the map. We go, okay. I'll tell you, this hike can be exhilarating. It can be challenging. It can be frustrating. It can be downright fun. 
But all we're doing is hiking. We're walking in the good paths, the good works that God is preparing for us. He's blasting the granite. He's showing us the way. I want Tim to come up here. I was having coffee with Tim a little bit ago, and I got to meet Tim uh, several years ago. And uh, he was a relatively new Christian at the time. And God's just been doing so much cool stuff in his life. He is on the hike. He's hiking, and I just want him to share a little bit about what's going on with him in the hike. Go for it, buddy. All right. Can you guys can you get this on? No? Yes? Uh, yeah, it's on. Cool. So, um, man, Dave, I feel bad. I'm so redundant. We, we, it's like we're from the same place. We're, we know the same God. Can you throw that life uh, slide back up where it said life and it had John twice? And, and then there's the scriptures. Next one also. Thank you. All right, just keep that up there. All right, so as he's talking about being on the hike, here's the thing. Dave and I were talking, and I said, hey, my wife and I miss you. We'd love to hear you speak. We'd love to hear Rob lead worship. We're, we're excited to do that. We think we're going to come on the 28th. And Dave goes, cool, can you speak? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And, and I'm excited to speak to you guys. I don't know everyone. Anyone who's looking at me goes, he kind of looks familiar. I've ridden bikes with your church, and I helped Dave move. So if that helps, <laughs> then maybe then you might know who I am. But here's the thing. He asked me to talk about kind of who I am, what I've done, so on and so forth. And I don't want to come off prideful because I'm literally just hiking because my Lord is worthy. Hmm. Give you a, the quickest testimony of my life. I've never done it this quick. I literally do this pretty much every day at yogurt shops to teenagers every single day telling them my long hour and a half testimony. But here's what <laughs> happened. Uh, born in 80. So I'm about to be 30 in a few minutes. Um, yeah. Uh, Wife, sorry, my mom and dad got divorced by the time I was 11 months old. My mom kidnapped me when I was three. Took me to Nebraska for 11 months, told me my dad had died. Dad comes in in the middle of the night with FBI agents, and I thought I saw a ghost, and he found me. Uh, My mom goes to jail. She tries to kill herself. It's just a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't really know much about until lately. Um, My... I start to live with my dad. Later on in my life, my mom starts to get visitation rights where I can kind of see her and stuff. And, and at the age of eight, she has cancer, and she dies from breast cancer. And even though my mom and I weren't as close because I lived with my dad, my mom, for lack of a better term, was my savior. I hurt myself, I'd go to her. Something happened to me, I'd go to her. And she was everything to me. So after my mom died, I would say that the idea of a loving God I was completely rejected by, and that's my daughter talking, by the way. I was completely rejected the whole idea of a loving Savior who loved me enough, a a loving God, to send his son for me. I go through middle school and high school, and I did a whole bunch of stuff I'm not going to tell you guys about, but it wasn't good. And in junior high and in high school, I remember Christians coming to me to tell me about Jesus and to tell me about this loving God. Oh, you probably didn't want to talk to me back then. Because I was rude, offensive, and I knew my stuff. I read stuff about evolution. I read stuff about a lot of different things. And because I wanted to disprove God. And as Christians would come and talk to me, I'd ask them questions that they couldn't answer. They didn't go to a Ben or a Dave and say, hey, I don't really know the answer to this question, and I've got this guy trying to debate with me. Can you help me? They didn't go and do that. And throughout high school, I kind of wore this as a badge of honor. I actually talked three Christians out of their faith. Because they literally did not have the foundation in Christ to come back at me with the loving God, to teach me who he was. A horrific car accident that I walked away completely unscathed, and a loving Christian family that took me in after high school were the two tools that God used to get me, to to make me turn away from the sin that I was in and go towards him. And (sighs) I... Accepted Christ on June 13th of 2001. Got baptized on June 20th of 2001. Man, did God take a hold of me. And I started to do things, and I started a young adult ministry at the church that we were at, and I I started to hang out with youth, and I started to do stuff. And God started to use me the way that he created me to be. A whole bunch of stuff happened in that that I won't go into, but I basically walked in the desert for about four years. And... We ended up being far away, and we ended up moving back to this area. And we started to, I'm the young adult leader at Trinity Church, but that's just what I do. I actually run a a business, so I don't work at the church at all. But 
I run the young adult ministry at the church, which didn't exist until last May, and it was the first one they had in 20 years. And help out with the youth and do a lot of other things, but even when I came back and I realized that God wanted, God wanted to use me the whole time, but I was rejecting it, I had some pride. My firstborn, who's not in here talking, um, she one day has a seizure. And I know seizures are supposed to last for three minutes from what I've read, but this one lasted for at least 30 minutes. And it broke me, and it scared me, and we went to the hospital, and I didn't know what to do because I couldn't control the situation. Mm. And God's timing is perfect because it was the day before we started the young adult ministry at Trinity. Hadn't had a ministry in 20 years, and I wanted to run that thing with all my pride, and I can do it, completely putting God to the side. She has that, she has that seizure, and we're laid up in Kaiser, and we're sitting there, and I, at 3 a.m., pull out my Bible and start to read through Job. Misery loves company. And as I read through it, and I'm holding my daughter's hand, who hasn't talked or moved or anything in quite a while, I prayed to God, Lord, if it's your will, and you've got to take my firstborn, <clears throat> i got to be okay with that got to be okay with that, Lord, because your will be done. Was really worried about her, didn't exactly know what was going to happen, and 36 hours after she had the seizure, we take her home, they let us take her home, and she's laying in between us in bed because we're worried she's going to have another seizure. We go to sleep at at about 10 o'clock at night, we wake up at 7.30 in the morning, and my daughter's jumping up and down on the bed, and she's going, Daddy, Daddy, Lorelai's crying, let's go get her. And it's like nothing ever happened. That young adult ministry started without me. And it, it's been blessed, and a lot of things have happened, and I've been able to kind of put my pride aside in that sense and go, you know what, Lord, let's do it the way you want to do it. And as I continued to do things and I started to meet with people and talk with people and try to get people excited about the gospel, as David does a very good job of, I still had some pride. June 1st of this, past, this year, I'm sitting in my, uh, I have an RV I'm sitting in my mother home, and as I'm sitting in it, I get a phone call from a, a 626 area code, and I see that it's Phoenix. I answer the phone, and it's a police officer, and he says, is this Tim Riley? And I said, yeah. He goes, what's your relationship to Michael Riley? And I said, he's my dad. He said, well, I'm sorry to let you know, but uh, we found him dead on the floor in his bathroom. All right. <clears throat> and I talked to him, what exactly do I do? The coroner will contact you. Okay. Hang up the phone. I have about four seconds of feeling like an orphan. I'm just, I've got no mom, i got no dad, i got no safety net. And in the midst of my RV sitting there, about to just weep and cry, I felt really warm. <clears throat> and I felt God put his arm around me and say, I got you. My wife and I had to drive out to Phoenix and take care of all this stuff, and it actually made me a lot closer to my sister and closer to my nieces and nephew, and which has been an amazing blessing. But from the moment my dad passed away, I have not shut up about my Savior. Mm. <clears throat> I got no safety net. I got no one to say, hey, Tim, relax. I mean, my wife does. But, <laughs> but I don't have a, a mother or a father to stop me from spreading the good news of my God. My dad didn't know Jesus. And it pains me and hurts me to say that. Mm. And I tried. But he accepted, he wanted a life completely away from God. He didn't want to accept a Savior. He didn't want to have anything to do with the Savior. And now he gets an eternity with that. And in a way, I mean, it, it sounds coarse to say, God gives us what our heart desires. The reason I ask for these to stay up is this. We're so redundant. John 17, 3, we talk about eternal life. And I, I sit down with teenagers and young adults, and I got to baptize a grandma not too long ago, a few weeks ago, which I was so excited about, and I'll talk about them in a second. And I was in, a swim, I was in swim trunks this morning, because at Trinity I got to baptize a youth. It was awesome. But eternal life is what we want. And John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That word know is important. That word know means to be intimate. When God was, it's the same know, the same Greek word they used in the Old Testament when God said that Adam knows Eve, that he knew Eve. So there's an intimacy. Raise your hand if you have Facebook. Raise your hand if you've heard of Facebook. Okay. This is how I explain it to teenagers. Use this analogy if you want. Don't, but I hope it touches you in a way. On Facebook, people ask to be your friend. And sometimes you don't really know the person. You see the name and you're like, 
Oh, Tim Riley. I think that guy spoke somewhere. I heard him. And you go and you accept him as a friend. And the thing is that you don't know me. You know a little bit about me as I've spoken about kind of the stuff that's happened in my life, but you don't know me. And God doesn't want to be that Facebook friend that we know of. God wants to be that Facebook friend. God wants to be the Savior and the person that's number one in your life that you follow, that you intimately know. And how can you know someone unless you spend time with them? So as I have sat down and helped youth and helped young adults and done all these different things, I sit down with people and I do this. There's a scripture that has truly touched my life and made me do what, exactly what I do with people because it's, it's really not that revolutionary. But I'll read, it's the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but essentially there is this eunuch who's a treasurer for Candace, the uh, queen. And he's reading a scroll, and he's reading Isaiah. And Isaiah is talking 700 years before Jesus was even born. He's talking about specifically what it means, or what the Savior is going to look like, and all these different things. And as he's reading this, the Spirit pushes Philip to go to that chariot, and he stands near it. And he looks at him, and he says this. Do you understand what you're reading? Oh, that eunuch, the best response I've ever heard. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? I sit down currently, and I'm tired, and I have probably the, the perfect, in fact, I know the perfect wife that God could have given me, because I sit down with 34 people a month, one-on-one. Yeah, you're right, actually. Sorry. 34 people a week, and I, thank you, perfect helper. I sit down with 34 people a week, and I literally sit down, and I answer that, their questions, and I'm available, and I explain to them who Jesus Christ is through his word, and... Again, don't want it to be pride, but I've been able to be a part of 20 baptisms since my dad died. God has been doing some amazing things in Sunnyvale. As I spend time with Dave, I've seen God do some amazing things here. And I just truly hope that you guys would look to the people around you and not go, man, I really want my cousin to know Jesus and miss out on your neighbor and your father and your best friend and everyone else. Because God puts the people around us on purpose. As you talked about... You know, the last thing Jesus said, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission, we are called to go out and make disciples. Not Sunday Christians. Not people that come in and put in their time with God. Jesus wants us to know him. That is what eternal life is. Eternal life doesn't start when we die. Eternal life starts now. That is my prayer for you guys. I'm excited. I'm excited that I know a lot of you and that I've met you before. And Dave speaks so highly of you guys, and he's pumped. And I'm pumped when we sit down and we talk about the different things going on in our ministry. So keep up the good work. But we're called to tell people about Jesus. So don't love people into hell. Because he loved us enough to send his son for us. That's good news. When I, if Aaron and I were to have another baby, I'd tell everyone, hey, we had a baby. Jesus dying for us is better news than even that. So we shouldn't keep it to ourselves. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Tim. Let me invite the band up. We're going we're gonna to wrap up with a song or two. Um, the reason I wanted you guys to hear from Tim is um, I was doing some prep work for this passage, knew we were coming here, and I'm like, man, that's a guy who's hiking. He's going along, and he's just, God's doing these different things. And I said, Tim, I said, how does it work that you go from, you know, a person who you kind of meet to where you're like meeting one-on-one? Just tell me how you do it. And he just shared something. Here's what I do. I use, I use Facebook. I use the phone. And he just makes himself available. Tim's really good at his business he does because he's out there talking to people. He's taken that. God's redeemed that and said, I'm not going to use that for your kingdom anymore, Tim. I'm going to use that for my kingdom. And by the way, long ago, I had you meet this beautiful woman, Erin. And long ago, I put you in this uh, desert for four years. I won't name the city. And then I brought you back to San Jose for such a time as this. Now walk in the good works I've been laying out for you. And so he is. And God's moving in Sunnyvale. What's so cool is God's moving here and actually moving people to Sunnyvale that we're getting connected in there. And I pray vice versa soon. God's working. Let me wrap up with this. I put in your notes Romans 12, 1 and 2. Most of you know this verse very well. The powerful thing I want to point out to you in correlation to our verse this morning is this. Paul could have appealed to these people on any number of things as to why they should present their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. 
He could have appealed to duty, to morality, to just buck up and do what you're supposed to do, to pay back God in some way. You know what he appeals to? By the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. Now, because all of that is true, because God's done a work in you, now present yourself a living and holy sacrifice, which is, which is wholly acceptable to God. That you may know the will and walk in it. That's it. I saw Romans 12, 1 and 2 in a whole new light this week because of that word mercy. And just chewing on that a little bit. To those who are separated, far off, still walking in a life that would exclude Jesus. I'll say it from the Bible. You have drawn enemy lines and you are enemies with Christ. Come to Jesus. It's simple. It really is. Come to Jesus. That's the offer. And I won't promise you a better life. Tim's life hasn't necessarily gotten better. As a Christian, God's using these things, but, but the offer is life. Tim's alive. You can see it in him. I hope you talk to Tim a little bit afterwards. Tim's alive. That's the offer. You look at our cover picture this morning, and it's a person of a, of a, of a guy snowboarding. He's not just alive, he's alive and well. Isn't he? He's soaring. He's not barely making it. He's not barely hanging on. He's alive and well. That's the life God offers to us, church family. Let's walk in it. God, this morning, we've just heard a ton. And uh, Lord, we love this passage. It's so rich. It's so powerful. Help us not glance over it because we've seen it before. I thank you for waking us up to the truth. I thank you, Father, that you've got the details of our life mapped out. We just need to keep walking in them. Lord, hiking, as we've talked about it this morning, requires a daily dependence on you. And the knowledge that your mercies are new every morning excites us and quickens us, Lord, to anticipate what you would have for us today. Many of us woke up this morning not thinking about the good works you have for us today on Sunday. But Lord, many of us may wake up tomorrow morning and let that be our first thought. God, what are the good works you've prepared beforehand for us to walk in today? Help us to do that. God, we can't possibly walk in good works a month from now. We can't walk in good works two years ago. But God, right now in this moment, we can walk in this newness of life that you've called us and freed us and enabled us to do. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen.